before we get some wind? Days, maybe. Then why don't we fish? What for? So we can get something to eat? We ate two days ago. You ate. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 89 and 90. We are pushing past the point where normal movies end. These minutes begin with the Deacon gazing longingly at a depiction of dry land and end with Helen giving the Mariner the business. A quick comment on the time. You mentioned that we are passing the point where normal movies end. Yep. I still feel like this movie is getting going. (laughs) I still feel like we are just beginning to understand the plot of the movie. And I've expressed that before. Really, the whole atoll part of the movie is like a third of the movie, but it feels like the intro. Uh Uh-huh. So this feeling now is an extension of that feeling. (laughs) The way they structure this movie, there's a reason that the theatrical release was so much shorter than three hours, because there's a lot of fat in this version of the movie that we are watching (laughs) that got cut out. In fact, this scene here where the deacon is longing for Dryland, he's looking at this depiction of what I can only assume is a golf country club. This was not in the theatrical edition, because he is practically dropping to his knees to worship at the very idea of leisure sports. Yes, he is. Literally dropping to his knees, and it is very worshipful. Yeah. I can get on board with him talking about dry land, salvation, room to grow, 18 holes, 36, 72. He just wants fairways and greens and sand traps and water hazards. Can we talk about this whole 36, 72 thing for a second? Oh, yeah. It totally threw me off. Yeah. So at first, I thought it was a play on the phrase 24-7. Because that's the way it's paced. Mm -hmm. There's a cadence to the way we say 24-7 when we mean all day, every day. And he uses that same cadence. So I'm like, is that a bastardization, a misunderstanding of that saying, similar to Fury Road's Aquacola? But when you just now said it, it made it sound like an extension of the idea of an 18-hole golf course. Like, 18 holes. 36 holes, 72 holes. (laughs) There would be so much room for these incredibly oversized golf courses. It tipped me off to look at, okay, well, you never set out in the morning and say, oh, let's do a 72-hole golf course. No one says that. That's crazy. But there are golf properties in the United States that are that large. In fact, Lynx Magazine has an article about the largest <laughs> golf properties. The biggest one, and by biggest, I mean it's at the top of their list, with 171 holes, is the Pinehurst Resort in North Carolina. Now, obviously, it's not like you start at hole one and you are supposed to play all the way through to 170. Right, several courses. Exactly. And this is just off the top of my head, my general knowledge is that the big titles, like the Masters and stuff, Mm -hmm. 
they're not playing one round of golf. They are playing a series and they go to places like that that have several courses and they play for a number of days on different courses every day. And those are the golf matches that would have been broadcast yeah, and that he would have and that people would record. So he would see these places and dream of them. Yes. I'm looking at this list and all of the courses that have blurbs and pictures have over a hundred holes to their properties. And I scroll down to the bottom and I'm like, oh, look at that. Those are names I recognize. Like the PGA National Course in Florida is only 90 holes. Pebble Beach is only 81. My guess is that those names that we recognize... We recognize them because they've been around for a while. Right. And these names of over 100 holes we don't recognize because they're newer. And exactly the same reason why the Deacon, who is operating in a 1995 world, would say 72 as this like pinnacle. Right. Because (laughs) in 95, perhaps 72 was the pinnacle. And now in 2021, 176 or something 176 is the pinnacle. Yeah, because they just keep adding holes. Right. (laughs) I'm just baffled, not so much by the number 176, but the amount of space that that would take up. I know, right? Golf courses aren't small. They're not small. They're huge swaths of land, and they are meticulously maintained. Yeah. So the amount of resources, water, fertilizer, manpower... Mm -hmm. To landscape all that. It's amazing the size of the golf industry in general. Not even in the United States, but just in general. It's mind-blowing. Right. So it's understandable why the Deacon is so enamored with golf culture. And the location of a golf club is where the powerful hang out and play. Mm -hmm. I can think of two examples that could not be further apart, but the two things that come to mind is first, of course, I have to say it, Donald Trump. And he tries to project this posh power that he's got going on, and he uses his golf clubs to do that. Mm -hmm. His personal golf resorts. So that's one example. (laughs) The other example, seriously, completely opposite end of the spectrum, okay? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the Banks family, belong to a golf club. Mm -hmm. And again, it is used as a setting to show their wealth and their power and their status. And to illustrate that to Will, who is coming into this world and has no earthly idea what's going on. And he is quickly introduced to the golf club. Right. Golf really is the perfect sport for the fabulously wealthy because it requires very little physical athleticism. Right. It's a lot of standing around. It's a lot of driving your cart. And then when you're done, you go hang out in the clubhouse right. and drink. All it takes is practice. So all you got to do is do it. Mm-hmm. And when you're wealthy and you have spare time and spare money, golfing is easy to accomplish. Yeah. So yeah, it is a great sport. My brother was on the golf team in high school. I was one of the sports I'm, he participated in. I have known that since I have known him and it's never really fit in my brain. The main reason why my brother and I went golfing is because my grandfather was a big golfer. 
He loved it. And so he would bring us. And oftentimes I would opt into just being the caddy because I was not good at it. I would always either hold the club in such a way that my shots would slice off to the side or I wouldn't keep my head down. It was a specific positioning thing that I just couldn't nail in order to make my shots go the correct direction. (laughs) Okay. In high school, one of the things that we would do to hang out with our friends, we would go to the driving range and we'd each get a bucket of balls and then we would terrorize everybody around us because (laughs) we were dumb teenagers. I have never been able to get the swing down. I just don't understand the physical movements that are supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. My body doesn't get it. I can't make that swing. I've always been more comfortable with putting. Oh, absolutely. I love mini golf. (laughs) Love mini golf. The deacon turning away from this gigantic painting on the wall returns to the map and he points to it saying, I say he's headed here and we take him here. And he must be talking about the trading post that we're going to see in several episodes. I think so. I do really appreciate the deacon's leadership here. His thought process, if you cut out the fat of talking about the golf course and he knows that we know that he knows that we know, if you cut out all that fat, the deacon has come up with a strategy saying the guy we're after is smart and he's clever and here's what he thinks that we're going to do. So we're going to do the opposite. And he's right, as we'll see down the road a little bit. And he makes a command decision. I really appreciate that. He's a good leader. Mm hmm. At least in this. In this. He's a good leader. (laughs) I'm sure at some point at the end of the movie, we will have the conversation to evaluate his leadership skills overall. But in this scene, in this moment, he's a good leader. Did you happen to notice as we fade out of this scene with the Deacon that the shot that we fade into is a reused aerial shot from the beginning of the movie? Okay, I didn't until you just said it. And... (laughs) I went to that shot. Absolutely, it is reused. I was struck by the whole sailboat porn thing that we're doing again. Like, we're doing this again? There are only so many transition shots in the original movie that when you jumble everything around, sometimes you just gotta reuse these other things to make it work. I have a quick question. I was just paused on this transition shot. So I'm at 20-ish seconds in, maybe 21 seconds in, and we've got the trimaran in the lower left-hand corner of the screen. So on the opposite side of the screen, in the upper right-hand corner, there is a black something coming into frame. Oh. It almost looks like a helicopter blade, like the tip of a helicopter blade coming in. Now, it doesn't appear to be in motion. Oh, yeah. Like, if this was old school film, I would just think that it was a tear in the film, A honestly. tear, or maybe like an eyelash Yeah, it, on it, the film. We're obviously in a helicopter, and we're kind of lowering down, but that black thing isn't moving at all. Uh-huh. So I don't know what it is. I think it's an eyelash. You think something just got on the camera lens? I think now, so. Now, you said that this was a reused shot. Right. So I'm wondering if it's on the other shots as well, which is a dig project that we don't need to do. I know. We'd have to go all the way back through the clips. And to that figure first out episode. where, which 
I'm not saying I won't do it, but I won't do it right now. (laughs) As we rejoin the Mariner, Helen and Enola, we find them in a situation where they don't have any wind. We have entered the cabin fever portion of the Muppet Treasure Island movie. Absolutely. Where they're not moving. And it's one of the best scenes in Muppet Treasure Island. And I do have to admit that we are entering one of my favorite scenes so far. So there is some parallel there. All right. It would have been rather insane if this movie went the same way as the Muppet Treasure Island movie did. If (laughs) they were lazing about on deck because they had nothing to do. And then the camera started going all wonky and the Mariner hops up and he's arms are going crazy and he starts shouting i've got cabin fever and then the lights and music kick up (laughs) i love that movie so much muppet treasure island it is so good as we're transitioning onto the boat again i am noticing we're getting a real good look at the sail which is the main sail it's the only sail but it's the main sail and i'm struck by its beauty It's very patchwork, but it's very colorfully patchwork. Mm. It's lovely. And you can also see something that really struck me is down in the bottom corner where it meets the mast, you've got these radiating seams. Mm. And that's exactly how they're sewn in real life. So I think he started out with a proper mainsail and has been patching all along. As opposed to finding a whole bunch of fabric and making a mainsail out of it. Right. That sounds pretty on par to me. Because a boat this big, you don't just piece it together. I think once upon a time, it was a proper mainsail. Exactly. Like a proper racing yacht that survived long enough for the Mariner to find it. And then he added all of the things, like the transforming Uh, elements. If it was a racing trimaran which i like that idea that it was a racing trimaran then this mainsail would have had numbers on it Mm. and it would have been really cool if there were remnants of the numbers yeah on this sail i don't see any though so helen is sitting off to the side asking how long until they get some wind to keep moving and the mariner says that it is probably going to be days before they feel wind again to get moving. And Helen asks why they don't fish. And the Mariner responds to that by saying, what for we ate two days ago? Right. Like he ate, as Enola points out. He ate a tomato (laughs) two days ago. Now, I understand that he is not completely human. And so his metabolic needs may very well be different than ours. Mm Mm-hmm. He also may be able to pull nutrients from the seawater with his gills. I don't know if that's a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's on the table. I don't really understand his nonchalance. He's not saying it in his typical spiteful way. Mm -hmm. If he was a little bit more nasty about it, I would say, oh, yeah, it's the Mariner being an asshole. Yeah, that would be like normal. But he's not. He's saying very matter of fact. So I really don't know what his thought process is here. He is on... Lookout. Right. He's he is, preoccupied. He is trying to listen for the sounds of motors and whatnot. So his mind is somewhere else. There is something more important than food right now, and that is their safety. So I guess that's what his deal is. I mean, I can appreciate him prioritizing safety, but Helen and Enola, they need to eat. I really appreciate Enola speaking up and talking back to him 
that's a fun little exchange they have and how Helen covers up Enola's mouth saying, hey, don't provoke him. Right. (laughs) And Helen, she approaches the Mariner with this fishing pole and she is pleading with him to get some help to fix this fishing pole. And the Mariner, he is the worst. He just looks at her and says, oh, you're not going to catch anything with this around here. And it made me wonder, what is the old adage? If you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. If you turn your back on someone, they disappear entirely. (laughs) I was wondering where you were going with that. (laughs) I love that she calls him out. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's such a childish thing to do, to turn your back on somebody. Think that just because you can't see them, they can't see you. And that's Mm. the way he behaves. Because he is prone to just walk away and sulk. So I love that she calls him out on that. And she does point out that she's not trying to provoke him to anger. They have basic needs and they are just asking for help. Right. She's willing to fend for herself. Mm -hmm. She just needs a push in the right direction. Yeah, some sort of clue perhaps. And when the Mariner says, you don't know what fishing's like around here, and she's like, well, if I don't know what it's like, but you do, then maybe you should fish if you're the authority. Yeah. And I don't think she was trying to go down the ego road that she ended up going down. I think she kind of fell into it and was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to travel this road for a few minutes and see what happens. (laughs) It's another good Enola moment in this section where Helen sits down next to Enola. She's frustrated with the Mariner. And Enola says, oh, well, maybe he doesn't know how to fish. And the look on Gene Triplehorn's face. Oh, it's so great. She's like, I think you're right, Enola. And she's got this smile on her face of like, yeah, if we're going to have to taunt you, then we're going to taunt you. As Helen is wrapping up her conversation when she's over standing with the Mariner, Mm -hmm. his back is to her and she turns to walk back over to Enola. She stops and rolls her eyes. (laughs) And it is magical. (laughs) It is so wonderful. The look on her face. I could just watch those few seconds on repeat forever. (laughs) They're so wonderful. What I like about this exchange between all three of them is that they are starting to learn each other's ways Mm -hmm. and to learn when to push buttons and when to stop pushing buttons. If this exchange had happened when they first got on the boat, there would have been physical violence of some kind. Yeah. More oars and more sails. Yeah. And more hair getting cut off and things like that. But all three of them have learned when to push and when to not. And I think Enola specifically is a really great example of that because she is a precocious little child. And it's so cute. And she is in this scene, but just enough. It's not too much. It's not obnoxious. It's just enough to push the scene forward, to continue to push the Mariner into action without pushing him into anger. She's gotten comfortable in this environment. Yes. And he has, I think, come down a little bit from his high horse with a stick up his ass. (laughs) Just enough to allow to be pushed just a little bit. They're just starting to meet in the middle where the scene doesn't completely implode. Mm. Something good actually comes from this exchange. Eventually. (laughs) Eventually. Yeah. (laughs) The Mariner does not take kindly to this taunting. He tells them to shut up because he is trying to listen for engines. And Helen, 
As I mentioned at the top of this episode, start giving him the business by increasing the volume of her voice as she asserts that she will not shut up until the Mariner stops what he's doing and helps her find something to eat for Enola. This scene is so great. I really just love it. Mm -hmm. Where she's not going to put up with his bullying anymore, and she is specifically doing the exact opposite of what he needs her to do. Because his objective is not a bad one. He's not doing anything wrong. He is concerned for them, but in a different way than Helen is concerned for them. But Helen is taking control of this moment. In the book, the order of events is a little changed from how it is here in the movie. We haven't seen him take away the fishing pole and throw it overboard. That's something we're going to see next week. In the book, it's something that happens before this exchange that Helen has with please help me catch something. And we get a little side conversation between Helen and Enola. The Mariner is tending the sails and Helen approaches. Please, Helen said, we appreciate what you've done for us. Without responding, he turned his back to them, heading to the steering console. Why does he act that way? Enola asked. I know he likes us. He spared us, Helen said. That doesn't mean he likes us. He likes us, the child insisted. I wish I knew his name. Well, I don't think he has one. The breeze lifted the child's dreadlocks gently. I have one for him. What? Mariner. Helen frowned. I've heard that word. It was in a poem old Gregor used to recite. Helen remembered the old man reciting the poem, or rather a fragment of it. The words were very old, from early land days. How did it go? It means sailor, the child said. Actually, Helen said, I think it means more than that. A sailor comes home to port, but a mariner, he lives out on the sea. It's his home. The child was nodding. It's a good name for him. You can use it too. And from then on, that was how Helen thought of him. Interesting. That's very interesting because we're going to have another scene later, later, later in this movie at the very end where Helen basically does the same thing. She names him. Mm -hmm. It's also nice to see an origin for the term the Mariner. Right. Because it's never spoken in this movie. Nobody ever calls him the Mariner. The only reason we call him the Mariner is because that's what it is in the end credits. Right. And I suspect it's only the Mariner in the end credits because that's what he's been called since the original script. Mm -hmm. In the book, we transition out of that conversation into a bit more of what's depicted here in the clip. It says, A growling emerged from the child's stomach, and Helen stroked her cheek. You're awful hungry, aren't you? Anola shrugged. She was not a complainer. Helen looked toward the Mariner at the steering console. He stood so still, he might have been carved there. I hope you're right, Helen said to the girl. About what? About him liking us. And she got up and moved gingerly over to him, pausing beside him at the console. Please. He didn't look at her. We don't want to make you angry. But if you just give me something to fish with, I'll catch them myself. Not in these waters, he said. What? He looked away from her. We don't disappear, Helen said, just because you turn your back on us. He swung around and faced her. He didn't look angry. He didn't look any way. We're hungry, she said. The child is hungry. You don't understand. What don't I understand? What fishing is like around here? From behind them, Enola's voice chimed. Maybe he doesn't know how to fish. (laughs) He shook his head in disgust and stormed away from her, leaping into the recess of the cabin in the main hull. This whole inching out of information thing is really frustrating. It is. 
he has a good reason for not helping her, but he doesn't actually tell her what it is. And if he would just tell her what it is, she would be like, oh, okay. So yeah, we're not going to fish. Right. <laughs> Here. Because if Helen knew what was coming in next week's episode, yeah, she wouldn't be so eager to dangle anything off the side of the boat. Right. So let's put a pin in that until next week when we will see Helen's fishing pole cast out to sea. The Mariner will do a poor job of water skiing behind the trimaran and we get our first look at the dreaded whalefin creature. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 45. See you next time. Mm-hmm.